even when we're being quiet and making space, it comes from our presence, not from our absence. Thank you for joining us on Doorknob Comments, a podcast that we created to discuss all things involving mental health. We take the view that psychiatry is not just about the absence of illness, but rather the positive qualities, presence of health and strong relationships and all the wonderful things that make life worth living. I'm Dr. Farah White. And I'm Dr. Grant Brenner. And with our guest for today, Mark O'Connell. He's a New York City-based psychotherapist in private practice, an author, and an actor. And we're here to talk about his book, The Performing Art of Therapy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Grant, do you want to sort of talk a little bit about how you met Mark and what made you want to bring him in here today? Yeah, we were in a study group together for the last year or two. I felt some resonance because I also think that therapists could learn a lot more about how to use their body and could learn a lot more about how to behave with patients in therapeutic ways. I've, I've often thought that therapy training should involve some role playing and, and building some specific skills. So when I heard Mark was working on this book, I, I thought it, it would be excellent. And, and it is excellent. I've had a chance to review. Thank you. <laughs> review a copy and yeah. I look forward to reading it in detail. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how did you become a therapist and how did how, how did you get into acting originally? And I know you talk about it in the book a bit. Uh, I was always a listener. I think that's really the answer for both of it because listening is the core of both of those uh, jobs. I had so much to do. I think as any performer, it's so much about who you are as an idiosyncratic being in the world. And I was born, you know, a gender nonconforming gay, you know, male. And so, so much of that was obvious when I was, when I was young. I was queer. I was, I was one of four boys. All of that's, you know, related to uh, my listening and my active listening and interest in really every every person. I was kind of outside of life a lot of the time is how it felt. And so I was actively listening and so interested in all these people around me who got to be alive and be idiosyncratic themselves. And so I was just always interested in sort of not only what people said, but how they said it and what that implied about them. And, and then I dreamed of being an actor. So the flip side of that was I really wanted to come alive. And so I would eventually start playing these people in my life that these big personalities and that's what when I started acting in college that's that's sort of what I would do and and then I tried it out as a career I went to grad school it became more real that's when I saw noticed that I couldn't just become all these people anymore uh, because you have to market yourself um, very much as you know the everyday self part of you has to be marketable and I and mine wasn't <laughs> and, well and you know there still aren't many roles available for effeminate men but um, but that was my everyday day self, if you think of yourself as an instrument and that you play some of you know, these keys in the middle and you've got all these other keys that you can play when you become characters. I wanted to be all the characters, but many people didn't want, you know, allow me. I did work, but I had to contort myself a lot. So, it, and then I started a theater company, which allowed artists to play multiple versions of themselves and, and gave myself that chance too. And then becoming a therapist was really just the, the next step of uh, that. It felt very fluid to give people the chance to be lots of different things. And then I feel ultimately very integrated because it's the listener that I always was, basically. It's interesting because there, there's a way where I hear a bit of the outsider, but I gather you found a sense of belonging as a therapist as well. Very much. I've never felt more like myself completely. I mean, I think doing this job and um, and then bringing the acting into it, I mean, I just, it feels so integrated and, and right. And that's really what I want for my clients too. Yeah. know that Grant brought it up a little bit, and this is something that we don't give a lot of thought to really as therapists. 
I didn't really get much training in how to use my body, how to breathe. Do you think that therapists could benefit from that? And, you know, if so, how? What are the kind of tips that having been in the field and knowing a lot of therapists, yeah, uh, what yeah. we could benefit from. Yeah, I feel like there's a version of this book for anybody, really, like in, in any kind of performance yeah. setting in the workplace, because a lot of the techniques that you talk about, um, and, and as it says on the cover, it's it's not a list of techniques, but rather a journey into the use of oneself, the essential instrument of therapeutic engagement. But you know, that could that could work in a lot of different relationships. For listeners, the book is organized like a play. There's act one, two, and three, and it works very well. It's not forced. And there's act one is prepare, act two is rehearse, act three is perform. It's really rich. There's everyday examples. Um, and it's not written in a jargony way. I think I think people who aren't in the field could benefit from reading it. But as Dr. White as Farah is saying, in prepare, there's there's several different things in the act one. There's listen. Know what you look like, know what you sound like, be present, breathe, embody, speak, and then warm up. What would you say about breathing? Well, it's important. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's the first thing we forget to do, and it's so crucial. It gives us space to think when we're in the room with clients. To be in the presence of another person is very challenging, right? You can can easily uh, sort of negate yourself and and just sort of make it all about the other person, or you can, you know, just dominate. And breathing really gives you the opportunity to use your mind and also receive what's coming at you at the same time. But the reason the book is organized in the way it is in, in, in these different facets of using us, the self, we we become, I think, fragmented when we grow up. I think as babies, it's very simple. We're very congruent. We breathe. We think it's all, you know, you see a panting, happy baby and, you know, and it's so it's so lovely, right, yeah. to see a self that is breathing and thinking um, and, and interacting and receiving. And it's so simple. And then we make it so complicated and we become a Picasso painting. And it's so hard to reintegrate all of that. And so drama school is one of the only places I ever encountered where you're actually doing that in a conscious way, which is a dilemma because it's something that has to happen naturally, but it's still worth trying. And that's why you have to have a Zen uh, approach to it, to do by not doing, if you will. So I try to my best to structure it so that there are these different ways into using the self and the body. So that being said, um, for breathing, I focus on not breathing for, for one thing so that you practice getting an innate sense of why you're doing it to begin with um, so you can just sort of be in your body and recognize that you're breathing so that you can live, so that you can interact with people and, and be alive and creative. And then I also provide some exercises for expanding your, your capacity to breathe, your rib cage. So, And that's really important when we're in heightened encounters with clients when there's trauma and we have to tolerate a lot of trauma, a crisis of some kind, you know, uh, just an abrasive personality or an aggressive, a combative personality. Those are some of the tools that I practice so that I can be in those situations, rise to the occasion, and then, you know, kind of take care of myself at the same time. I find that breath awareness hurt um, hurts is like a Freudian slip. I find that breath awareness <laughs> helps a lot when there's anxiety around other people. Yeah. Mm. There, there's a way where, you know, when you said when you breathe, it's about living. 
And I think that helps people stay grounded when there's a lot of anxiety. It keeps your breath from kind of taking over your physiology, right? You're aware of your breathing and in control of it. So mm. that rapid breathing that comes with distress, you you can kind of track that and control it. But I also wonder about the close, you know, close encounter with other people that I guess both acting, which I haven't done very much of, but there's a point where you describe and someone comes on the stage and you have to accept their character. It's not so much you being in character as much as you have to you have to believe the other person is who they are yes in role and so there's something about that intimate encounter which i think is anxiety provoking and and breathing helps with that absolutely absolutely it is it is anxiety provoking because it's you're very vulnerable when you allow someone else into you know your your process when when you're open to being changed by someone else being seen by someone else and absolutely breathing is a way to both be vulnerable and kind of self-possessed at the same time it, it allows you to kind of split the difference that way. So you have a kind of strength in the room, but you're not tense and you're not pushing people right. out. I think that is so helpful because I'm someone who holds a lot of tension in my body. For many years, I had trouble even listening to the sound of my own voice as a therapist. You know, I did have some recordings that I used for training purposes, but it was so, so difficult. Grant knows what a struggle it was for me. And it then, is for everyone. <laughs> just felt like, I don't know, nails on a chalkboard. or And then I thought, why would anyone want to willingly sit there and listen to me? Oh, my God. My inner critic is going to go crazy listening to this <laughs> podcast. So, I mean, it happens. <laughs> it doesn't really go yeah. away. But then the thought that we're when we're in the room with someone, they're also looking at us and yeah. how we're sitting. And I just felt like it was so brave that you talked mm. about watching yourself on mm. camera, seeing the flicker. And I'm wondering what motivated you mm. to do that, whether it was your background in acting or... You mean when I started practicing yeah. it myself before yeah. I wrote it? I gradually started to um, implement my acting approaches in in the work. It just gradually uh, happened. But actually, no, there is, a, there is a story. I was getting burnt out at community mental health clinics in the early stages, getting my licensing hours. And I was using probably lots of techniques and not taking care of myself and had an opportunity to do a play, which was a nice vacation. Because I wasn't pursuing acting professionally, It was I was so free and I let myself fail and it was just so fun. And I came back to work. <laughs> and, and I noticed I was still a scene partner, even when I was just listening. And I thought, well, why, why don't I just prime myself to be in the scene all the time? Yeah. Listening can always be like this, even just being present. So that's, I think, when I started becoming very interested in how I could just practice being an actor and, and it would benefit the work, really. And, and, and facing yourself is certainly the biggest job, really, mm -hmm. the fear of yourself. And that's what I want to eliminate for therapists like right. you and for everyone, just the fear. We don't have to be afraid of ourselves. We can use ourselves. You talked about how important it is to find different characters. And you write about the first character as the ideal listener. You talk about how listening is, is the magic thing. And, and you write, the idea of sharing our inner lives with a mysterious stranger can ignite the hope of being truly recognized. This hope often motivates us to enter the therapy stage, no matter how much state fright, quote unquote, we have. I try to locate that hope in each client by observing how they want me to listen to them, which helps me embody a character I call the ideal listener, the mystical person who lives in each of our minds and has an abundant capacity to hold, validate, 
and encourage us. I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts about that and beautifully written as oh, well. Thank you. Thank you. That came out of just a lot of trial and error. And, you know, when you try to be so intentional and you realize how much you're failing, especially with a, with a new client um, to figure out how they want to be listened to. And I just over time, I, I started to give myself a break and realize that I'm just reminding myself of what it was like for me to see therapists and just that anticipation you come in with and that hope or the, kind of like going to the movies or the, a play and it's before the curtain comes up and you're already anticipating something. So I, I just try to get out of their way. And I realize if I just get out of their way and let that and that lovely anticipation kind of enter the room, then I don't have to be so self-conscious actually. And it's not, that's different than the blank screen because I'm still present. I'm not the man behind the curtain. I'm still in front of the curtain. It's just that I'm not feeling the pressure to produce something, in, especially in, in the beginning. So that way of thinking, I think, helps relieve that self-consciousness. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the pressure to produce something, whether it's an interpretation or whether it's like a supportive comment, um, yeah. really takes us away from the listening because it's sort of, you know, you can get into a place where you're formulating things in your mind and then really not listening at all, which is, you know, problematic. I think you ha you referred to that state of mind of kind of intellectually processing, right? Is, did you have a character for that? I don't know if I had a, a name for, for that, but... I might have imagined it. But, <laughs> but I definitely talk about the awareness of it. I mean, I, I talk about energy centers, working with the energy in your body mm -hmm. and recognizing when it's very focused in your, in your head, in your forehead. And I have a whole section on energy meditation and use of chakras and noticing where you tend to operate from in your body energetically. When, the head chakra. And the head chakra would be the one right that you're talking about. But when you realize that that's happening, you can kind of move out of it and become you know, more of a, a loose kind of presence and more of a, you know, a very heartfelt presence or something like that. Well, it's interesting because there's a kind of alchemy there. And you, you talk about like the true self and play. I'm wondering, you know, what's mystical about listening, the ideal listener? How does that connect with authenticity? Because, of course, some people in our field, they're like, well, I'm not going to fake it as a therapist. Mm. And you're obviously not saying that anyone should be inauthentic. Mm -mm. If you could speak to that idea of authenticity and the sort of the, the mystical effect of listening? Yeah. Well, as far as authenticity, I never, I, I would like to think that I'm never fake. I think I'm always looking for a way to be truthful. That's why it's helpful to think of the language of acting. It gives us a sense that we can always be truthful as long as we're looking for the, the purpose and the given set of circumstances and the safety within each um, role that we have to play. Because And then within that frame, we can find some kind of truth. And so that keeps me sort of energized as, as a therapist because I'm constantly looking for, okay, well, how do I become this person that, that I don't feel like I can be for this client, this impossible, you know, loving parent to someone who is so combative, for example, right? Because you, you to be authentic would be to, you know, what we call an enactment or something, you know, to react and, and be angry and defensive. And so it just, you know, you, it, it's, a, it's a very exciting process to find a way to be safe enough with someone like that to, to be truthfully loving them, for example. You know, I was thinking about how truth comes out of the, the listening. Right, right. The, the patient's truth, you know, and, and the mystical power. I mean, I think that's 
really interesting when people are present with one another. There's this creative space that you can get into, whether it's therapy or acting or, you know, in the boardroom or, you know, in a family. And it struck me that you use the word um, mystical. Uh-huh. I see. I see. It's it smacks of mysticism. Well, and it, it is mystical. It is mystical in a way, which isn't necessarily crunchy or something. I mean, it's, and again, it's, if you think of the language of acting, this is something that improv um, performers think of all the time. There's, mm-hmm. there's simply mm-hmm. a higher consciousness than either, either person involved. Something else happens. And if you're open to the idea of that, you know, a, a whole play is going to unfold that is neither created by one or the other. And um, you have to surrender. You do have to, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You have to surrender and and trust that there is space between you that's going to help mediate the choices that the, each of you is making. And if you're responsive and if you are both responsive and trust each other, it does happen. In fact, the process of this book happened that way. As I was working on it, I reached out to the actress who plays uh, the therapist on Big Little Lies and, you know, thinking that, okay, whatever, that's just kind of cool. She's an actor and she's playing therapist and she's really good. But she got back to me in this way that was very genuine and, and she was clearly listening. And this dialogue, and you know, took place and, and, and suddenly the process of writing the book uh, became, you know, it took on a life of its own. And I realized as it was happening that I was like, oh, that's the thing I'm talking about. That's the scene partner work between uh, therapist and, and client. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Um, and there is something mystical about that when someone actually listens to you and is responsive to you. And she comes from a psychoanalytic background, right? Her father and her grandmother. I describe it in the epilogue, the, this meta process, because um, because it's very fun. And it's a, and what actually ended up taking place was very literalizing of this idea. Her mother was a formidable – our grandmother was a formidable psychoanalyst, Edith Weigert. And, um, and her father was a, a well-known psychoanalyst as well. Both of them were fascinated by artists and, and creative artists. When you are open to these kinds of connections – and this is really the mystical element. You realize how interconnected we actually are as people. So, you know, it's a literal kind of example of that that I include. But it is a concept that I think is, is really true. And that's what mental health is, I think, being open, you know, to each other and, and sharing stories and openly and being able to receive them. I feel like charisma is in there somewhere, too. I think listening is a part of being charismatic. Mm. And listening is a part of leadership as well. Mm. You know, there's a lot of different angles on it. I do want to talk a little bit about uh, charisma and maybe also that could lead into some portrayals of therapists in the media (laughs) because they are decidedly the least charismatic (laughs) characters um, consistently, it seems to be, with the exception of... Robin Weigert. Right. Our friends. Yeah. Yeah. Exception of people we like. (laughs) Um, Can you talk a little bit about what you liked about her performance Uh, and... Everything. I mean... I what I liked is that you saw a present human being in the room um, that was apparent in this in her voice and in her eyes, and which isn't to say that she interfered with her client's process at all. Mm-hmm. You know, she made space in all the ways that you would hope a therapist would. She recognized there was trauma, and she used her voice to help her regulate and share and and get out of her way. But she didn't do that from a place of absence, as, which is what mm-hmm. we used to think of. Uh, you know, the ideal therapist. She does it from a place of presence. And to me, that is so, you know, critical and and just revelatory for for therapists to see. Even when we're being quiet and making space, Mm -hmm. it comes from our presence, not from our absence. 
Um, that's what I loved about it. And there was one thing that really stood out to me, um, really, as the plot unfolds, how she goes from listener to really being a key player in basically, you know, tell I don't remember the name of the character, but telling her to get out of the marriage, um, mm-hmm. that she was really in danger. Part of it is, yes, we want to listen, but also when is it time to really take action and to let someone know, hey, this, this isn't safe. I think it would be good for for patients if they really felt like, okay, someone is, this therapist is on my team. And if I'm in danger, they're going to let me know. And you gave an example in, in your book where you really kind of got someone the, the health care that they needed. Directed, right? Yeah. Directing. Yeah. Right, right. And that's part of being present, too. I think that's why there's a there's a chapter on being present and you in yeah. practicing sort of the art of sort of determining in the moment, sort of, right. do I need to follow? You know, do I need to take the lead? And, and you have better judgment, I think, the more you practice being present. Yeah. I particularly liked the example of getting your teenage patient to the gynecologist because that's something oh, that I'm faced yes. with so, so much. Um, and how do you, you know, how do you sort of transition in and out of just like active listening? to really like, no, no, you need to. (laughs) Right. Well, especially when the parent's not, you know, working with you. Yeah. Or sometimes it's really the patient who is not seeing something that where it does need to be pointed out and maybe take a few liberties because, you know, sometimes I'm prescribing medication Mm. and I'll say, well, we need labs and while you're at it. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Let's check your cholesterol. Well, but. what's interesting, so about that example, what I what I emphasize, I'm remembering that was about, I was talking about research and sort yeah. of because it was a, a teenage girl. Yeah. And so I'm just thinking, well, I, what do I know about teenage girls? You know, but, um, and what the research did when you think like an actor, it, it wasn't sort of like, here's a prescriptive thing that I can do. It was the, it was the tone of my voice and sort of by, by talking to a lot of women in my life about mm-hmm. how do I handle this? I, I got to a point where I was so clear in my thinking that I could, I was focused on how relaxed I was and, and, and sort of not pushing it okay. and being very subtle. So that's where the acting came in, where yeah. it's not being fake. It's definitely being genuine. But the research and the prep helped me uh, be so clear in my intention mm-hmm. that I could that I could be kind of relaxed and sort of inviting for her rather than pushing. You know, I think that's something that's definitely outside of the the regular psych- psychotherapy training, you know, which may involve practice with patients and supervision, but sort of researching and trying to actively get information so you can prepare for a role, right? Mm-hmm. And empathize better is a tool I think that, that therapists and other, other folks could benefit from as well. You know, I think there's a lot of things in your book that a lot of people could use outside of therapy. One that jumped out at me was the idea of editing. So I wanted to ask you what how you define editing and how you think it's useful, you know, for anybody. Right. Well, the the way I, I use it in, in the book is really to help like a good editor. Like my, I had a very good editor working on this. My friend, actually, Ida Rothschild, um, is a wonderful editor. But a good editor doesn't just tell you what's wrong. <laughs> they help you to clarify your authentic mm-hmm. voice. And so when I think of editing in the therapy room, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the way a, a client talks about themselves. And I try to say back to them sort of what I'm hearing or even do a kind of autocorrect if I think I can say it sort of in a way that's, you know, gets more at the heart of what they mean. Right. And and, and sometimes that works. How do you think about self-deception? You know, is there a concept that that clients are kind of hiding things from themselves mm. or that people are pretending to be something <laughs> they're not? And, you know, pretending can be a form of play that's very constructive, but it can also be used defensively. How do you think about that as an actor therapist? Well, as an actor therapist, in my experience, I'm the only times I'm bored are when people are 
lying about something. I've learned. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm truthfully, endlessly interested in everything about people. And the moments I'm bored, I'm just like, oh, wow. They're hiding something or they're, you know, insecure about something. Yeah. That's like your lie detector. I was trained psychoanalytically that if, if I feel bored, it means there's rage somewhere in the room. Uh, well, maybe. That could be one of the things, that, you know, that they're hiding. At the, yeah. It's certainly. But they're definitely hiding something. Yeah. Well, I, I have found that that's actually, I mean, it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy very easily. But usually if I feel bored, I'm like yawning and it's unusual. I kind of know how tired I am at baseline, but sometimes it's like a spell comes over me and I'm just like, this is like almost like, you know, a soporific effect. It's like a snow white, like sleeping beauty. Like I'm being knocked out by some kind of psychological force that I can't quite glimpse. And I'll say something like, you know, when I feel like this, I'll say this out loud. You know, I was taught that this means there's anger somewhere. Mm. And that's a strong suggestion. But it also, I can't think of a time where it hasn't been like, well, I am really angry about that. <laughs> right. And I'm kind of right. like, well, that's interesting. What happened that it wasn't present? How right. did it come out that way? Right. No, that's that's true. You have to you have to at those times do something provocative, and and it, prob- it usually does have something to do with anger. Oftentimes, it often it, it can be something like they expect you to be doing more or something mm-hmm. like that. They're frustrated. They don't know how to talk about right. that. That how to get more out of you. Something like that. So it could be some so sort of critical aspect, like the therapist isn't doing something right. Right. But then there are people who seem like they're angry all the time, and I don't want them to get angry. <laughs> any any advice on how to keep people from going there and still have it be useful? Wow, that's very. Uh, challenging question. I mean, I, I I talk about safety. So like you you have to feel safe, right? So, I, you know, I guess if, if I feel um, assaulted in any way, you know, I, I obviously have to set some kind of limit because you can't work. You just can't do your yeah. work if you're feeling unsafe. Mm-hmm. Just like an actor, like you can't, if you're feeling like, oh, wow, I'm physically threatened. Like we had yeah. fight choreography for this. What's going on? Why, you know, you, you have to be safe first and foremost. So yeah, you can't really do much work if someone's that angry. <laughs> I think mean, that's just it. Mm-hmm. How do you gently convey that because that's that's really challenging, like you said, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm trying too to much, think. Maybe yeah. maybe all my clients have repressed rage because <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of it. <laughs> They just want you to be. They want you to be at the top of your game. I I black out, and and then I find myself at the Whitney two hours later, and I don't know what happened. Wow, I mean, it has it hasn't happened uh, very uh, recently. I don't know. I mean, what kind of rage are you like yelling at me or something like that? Well, you know, you talked about the idea of of folks getting angry at one another and not being Mm -hmm. able to express it very clearly. And I think you have a vignette with a couple where. One, one, one of the people in the couple is going out and partying. The other one is kind of he's trying to stay home. And um, and you, you describe listening and then editing. And you say to the more quiet guy kind of at the end, like, what is it that you really want to say? Mm, right. And it, it wasn't so much I'm angry at my partner, but it was more like, what do I really want? Right. Um, and I was listening to them. I had to look away from them because there was so much that wasn't being said that I actually, in that case, I had to, I would even tell them, I was like, I'm looking away from you because I need to experience this as a radio play. <laughs> so yeah. I, I'm getting too confused and distracted by seeing you. And um, and then, I, yeah, and then I could listen better too. 
And I like to say, I mean, bringing in, sometimes there are literal ways in which I bring in sort of the theatrical element, and that was an example of it. Um, you know, when you kind of talk about sort of like the, the, the scene work that we're in in a meta way. Sometimes I do take a more active approach as an acting coach. And this is when you said, you asked Grant about sort of other professions. How can this um, be useful? Um, some of these ideas. I have clients with whom I'm do, I do sort of a bit of acting coach coaching with for their relationships with their partners, but also for their careers. If they work in a corporate setting and they manage people, for example, you know, I have clients who are, you know, I have to give them the same acting coaching for their partner as I do for mm -hmm. talking to their employees, basically. And so we'll go over their line, their line readings. They're like, I did what I, what you told me to do. I, I said, this is what I need. And, I'm, and I'll say, okay, how did you say it? And of course, it's just like, well, this is what I need. And, and, you know, and then I let him or her listen to like, okay, I guess I was kind of blaming and sort of, you know, criticizing. And, and so we, then I'll, I might give a line where like, you know what, this is what I need. And it's, and, and it begins with the tone of voice, but then I have them explore sort of like, well, how do you, how, what will it take for you to get to that tone of voice? Do you need to take a moment to process sort of why you're so angry about it or why you think that you're entitled to blame them for, you know, not listening to you, you know, and all of that, but which is what any therapist would do in some way. But I, I work with it in terms of sort of like the line reading of it. Like, how are they okay. performing the lines? It sounds very protective because it, it creates kind of a theater, you know, in which people can look at their at their choices without feeling judged. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I try. I try. And then if I seem judgy, I apologize. You can always apologize. <laughs> I like that part. I mean, that you know, again, like if you think of it in, in terms of acting, like in rehearsal, you're always failing, and that's and a lot of good stuff comes out of failing. So as long as you acknowledge, like ah, that that didn't work, that bombed, you know, then it invites the client to to be part of that process and to be present. We're uh, running out of time for today. Any any final thoughts? <laughs> well, there were three things that I would love to offer as takeaways. Uh, three different people read uh, the book recently and gave me some feedback. And one was a colleague who's been working for years in the profession. And she told me that she feels more energized in her work all of a sudden, that she just is excited to go to work and to really think of what she does creatively. Someone else is from a family of artists and is a therapist friend of mine. And she said that she had always felt like she wasn't part of the family business, but now she really considers herself an artist and she feels she's, you know, has permission to think of herself that way. And the third was a client actually who read one of the vignettes that was about them and said to me the most lovely thing that, um, that they felt they were so encouraged that I'm as involved in the process as they are. And that's how they felt reading the thing and, and recognize that even when I'm just sitting back and listening that I'm, that I'm not getting burnt out, that I'm not uh, feeling burdened, that I'm actually, in, I'm a scene partner and in this creative process with them. So if I want anyone to take anything away, it's really those three things. I hope people can be energized and think of themselves yeah. as artists and in the scene with their clients. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's you're really there. Okay. <laughs> this was so great, Mark. Thank you so much for coming down and for being here with oh, us today. Thank you so much. I've learned so much from you and can't wait to <laughs> to implement it this afternoon, actually. Yeah. And for folks who want to learn more about Mark O'Connell. Please go to his website at www.markoconnelltherapist.com. www.markoconnelltherapist.com. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. <laughs>